welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to look at what can be done to treat hypermobility and how to improve our lives given our circumstances. Today, we are very excited to be speaking with Hannah Enzer, trustee of the Hypermobility Syndromes Association, the HMSA, based in the United Kingdom. Hannah worked in the field of environmental health for five years before being medically retired at age 28 due to a hypermobility spectrum disorder and postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Even though Hannah had symptoms of hypermobility throughout her life, she wasn't diagnosed until she discovered the HMSA, and it was the information and support that she received from the HMSA that led her to the right diagnosis and to a course of treatment to manage her conditions. Hannah experienced misunderstandings and metaphorical brick walls when trying to communicate about her conditions, so she looked for ways to open vital lines of communications with friends, families, colleagues, and medical professionals. She underwent a hospital stay in which her ability to speak was very limited, and she discovered that using drawings with stickmen combined with straightforward, simple explanations got her message across. This concept quickly developed into Stickman Communications, a company that uses cartoon drawings of Stickman to break down the barriers to communicating positive yet realistically about a wide range of disabilities, needs, and symptoms. Her products, blogs, and talks are used worldwide by people with disabilities and medical professionals. Hannah has volunteered for the Hypermobility Syndromes Association since 2010 and was featured in the Power 100 of Britain's Most Influential People with a Disability or Impairment in 2016 and 2017. Hannah, hello, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, and thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. Um, So let's start with how you discovered your own hypermobility. Can you tell our listeners about your experience with navigating symptoms that ultimately led to diagnoses that formed the basis for your treatment regimen? So I come from a hypermobile family, so I didn't stand out very much. So I'm a little bit more bendy than most of my siblings. But it meant that there was no sort of red flag mm-hmm. because compared to them, it's not much of an issue. Mm-hmm. But if you put me next to an average person now, you think, oh, well, yes, I can, I can see the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there were a lot of things that were just like Hannah Quirks growing up. You know, even to the point of missing six months off school when I was about 11 because of hip and pelvic pain. And it was all in my head. It was attention seeking, you know, the stuff. But I was given a physiotherapy, intensive physiotherapy session, um, series of sessions, and it seemed to help. And I suspect also that my hormones calming down a bit also helped a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I still wasn't diagnosed. At least I think based on a conversation at the same hospital 15 years later, that they picked up that I was hypermobile, but decided not to label me because that was negative. That's so frustrating. I I grew up knowing that I was the same as my peers because I'd been told that there was nothing wrong with me Mm -hmm. and constantly being unable to keep up with them. So, like, if I had a busy weekend... I'd sleep, I, I couldn't get out of bed on the Monday. <laughs> mm-hmm. And all my peers, absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. Or if I had a busy week, then I might have to do nothing on the Saturday because otherwise mm-hmm. I couldn't function. That was like, but mum kind of built that into my, into what she expected from me. 
So I think I had a lot of adaptations as a kid, which were actually really supportive as far as we understood. But then I was in my early 20s and it went from frequent injuries and lots of quirks to a pelvis that was absolutely agony. But I didn't. it didn't occur to me to take time off work because it was an extension of what I normally experienced. Mm-hmm. It was just a bit worse and I got myself a pair of crutches before even actually seeing my GP, <laughs> a general mm-hmm. practitioner. So mm-hmm. it was... You know, this kind of escalation of symptoms that I didn't really believe were symptoms. And then around the same time, one of my younger brothers, who had a, had a really bad back throughout his teenage years, got diagnosed as hypermobile. And then one of my, my sister-in-law had really bad SPD in pregnancy, symphys pubis dysfunction, I think it is, mm-hmm. where the pelvis is too loose. Mm-hmm. And it was like her descriptions matched my experience. And then with my brother diagnosed as hypermobile, I was like, right, I think I've got the same thing as my brother. I'm going to go to the GP and ask for a referral. Because until that point where I was like, oh, I might be hypermobile, this might explain it all. It was like I couldn't go to the doctor because I knew the answer. I've had the answer many times before when I was a child and teenager and had been investigated. So you had this thing where part of me knew that I was perfectly healthy and part of me knew that I wasn't. (laughs) It's really tricky to handle. Absolutely. And I relate to that so much myself. I often say up until I learned about hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos, which wasn't until I was 29 years old, um, I had never heard of Ehlers-Danlos prior to that. Um, One time at a general doctor appointment, a doctor just remarked to me, you're hypermobile. And yeah. he just said it in, in the way you would say, you have brown hair, yeah. you know, like, it, and I just thought, oh, okay. You know, like there was no context. And no, so I had all the same. I was told I was beautifully flexible. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it looks good. Doesn't feel good. <laughs> yep. Oh, the emphasis. Yeah. People admire, oh, you're so flexible. That must be so nice. And it's like, well, it's kind of a balance, a Goldilocks thing. You know, there's too flexible and there's too inflexible. Yeah, it's exactly. Not all good. So so it, then I managed to get, I was accidentally given two referrals on our NHS system. So, and I was like, should I cancel one of them? And I was like, oh, actually, I, I'm just going to see both and, um, <laughs> and see which one I prefer. First one I saw, so I went in on crutches. They told me to throw away the crutches and I needed to just stop imagining the pain and at that I now know that at that point in time my pelvis was literally subluxated it was partially like literally out of place Mm -hmm. and it was pinching me every time I moved (laughs) no and then the other chap took one look at me and went I'm not even going to bother doing the formal scale on you I can tell from how you move just you just held my hand and sort of wiggled the fingers gently and went, yes, you're hypermobile. Mm-hmm. This is the reason you've got pain. Let's put you on some physio and some painkillers. And yeah. So that was sort of how I got diagnosed and how I discovered that I was hyper- hypermobile. And then, so 
during that period between my brother being diagnosed and me being diagnosed, I joined the HMSA as a um, just as a member. And I learned it was like suddenly my entire life made sense. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's really hard to explain it to someone who's never experienced it. But it's like all these things I thought were Hannah Quirks or were me being really feeble or were me being stupid. It was all explained. Mm-hmm. Like getting tired quickly, having really clumsy moments, mm-hmm. injuring myself, falling over, mm-hmm. um, needing a break after a meal and then through the HMSA I then found out about postural tachycardia syndrome and managed to get that diagnosed um and again that was a very sort of similar everything else in my life also now makes sense mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, even things that were family traits like um my dad and me both hated going to the beach in the summer mm-hmm. you know I, I'm all for you know going for a walk in the wet and windy autumn <laughs> Mm-hmm. along the beach but I hated going and lying on the sand and that's because of heat intolerance mm-hmm. related to the autonomic dysfunction of pots and then similarly both me and my dad this was before I got to the point of using a wheelchair um would walk instead of stand if we were giving a talk or um or even just chatting with someone mm-hmm. because otherwise it was too it just too exhausting if you stand mm-hmm. still Again, it's an autonomic dysfunction coping strategy. So I have no time for anyone who says don't you know we don't want to label you because actually labels help you understand that's what they're there for. Definitely. When you've got a body that doesn't operate as average, mm-hmm. you need that's you know step one of understanding that oh I need to stop trying to pretend that my body is average, mm-hmm. and then I can live to the max within how I function rather than mm-hmm. how someone else functions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I relate to so much of what you just said. It's eerie. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting. Like you describe it as having the Hannah quirks. And for me, I, I felt like I was a, a healthy average person because I'd been repeatedly told that despite um, you know, really strange symptoms and infections and injuries that definitely seemed to me not consistent with what my peers were experiencing. And, yeah. and like you described, the extreme exhaustion after relatively, um, you know, not demanding activities for an average person. Um, and so I thought of myself as a healthy person with a lot of bad luck. And then once I learned about these conditions, I started to see myself as, you know, a a person with a lot of differences and and with this lax connective tissue and all that goes with that, um, who's actually had, um, well, certainly still a lot of bad luck because there's, there's also, I know I've seen doctors like that first one you described, um, that were completely dismissive, but, um, in a way I think I've had, um, you know, some good luck because I've been able to, um, you know, knock on wood up until this point, you know, find solutions and find treatments for a lot of what I've experienced. Um, but uh, it's just, it's, it's so amazing. And I'm so glad there was that administrative error where you got those two appointments because it's so easy to imagine 
right? Another universe where you've just gotten the one. And, and that is the experience of so many hypermobile people we get told. And again, you use the phrase that many of us have heard and, you know, have intuited that this is all in our heads. And it's extraordinarily damaging because it, it causes you to have, well, in my, in my experience, it sounds like um, maybe you experienced something similar. Um, this cognitive dissonance on one hand, you're thinking I'm normal, you know, come on body. Why are you doing this? Like, let's get it together. And then on the other hand, knowing, no, there's some, I know there's something going on, even if no one else sees it or, or believes it. And, it, it's just, it's such a bizarre situation. Um, yeah. But it, it really has gotten me, you know, to the point now where, you know, I try to advocate and spread awareness in any way I can, because I, personally, I think the key to us being able to, like you said, live to the max within our constraints is informed consent is early awareness, yeah. so that we can make decisions that are responsible, given our our connective tissue makeup yeah and as i put it as you can't manage a symptom that you don't believe you have yes and it's like i mean even now you know i i know so much about hypermobility i know so much about my body i know how important pacing is and yet you know if i'm having like a really good day like right i'm gonna walk to my wheelie bin and put my trash away Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. It's about four meters from my front door. So I do the walk. And, you know, if I get there and I haven't had to lean on anything, I haven't stumbled, I haven't really hurt myself. I'm like, I think I might be making up. I don't think I need a wheelchair. And it's like, and then like literally by the time I got back to my front door, I'm like, no, I do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Literally that that short period of, functioning close to average makes me doubt the entire rest of my life mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. It, it yeah. is ridiculous and I think that's so but it, but because I'm now sort of so familiar with that reaction it's almost like I treat it like an old friend mm-hmm. so it's like yeah hello mm-hmm. again you're still talking nonsense there there <laughs> I shall move on <laughs> yeah but it's so unfortunate that you know, it the, it takes so long for us to be diagnosed, and again, this this misperception. I've heard it as well um, in, in in other contexts. You know, what's the point of seeking this diagnosis because there's no treatment? And it's like you said. I mean, knowledge is is power, but it, it's really everything. Yeah. And you know, had we not grown up with this perception that we were average, you know, we wouldn't have the well ideally we wouldn't have so many moments of beating ourselves up for not being able to do, you know, metaphorically speaking for not being able to do quote unquote average things. And I just, so that's why I think it's critically important for people for who have these conditions to know about them as early as possible at an age appropriate time, obviously, you know, not like from toddler maybe, but just, you know, having that knowledge and, and realizing that in my case, and it's certainly my impression of you, you know, for as much as we're limited physically, which people see and are confused by, because a lot of us look, um, 
you know, quote unquote, look healthy, you know, whatever that means. Um, And it's just, it's, it's incredibly unfortunate to, to, to be in that space and to, to have to be in this position of, you know, doubting ourselves. But, you know, so we have these challenges and these obstacles, but I think we have also a lot of great strengths that come you know, that are associated with our hypermobility. And I'm, I'm so consistently struck with um, how dynamic, how charismatic, um, how compassionate and empathetic many hypermobile people are. And, you know, for a lot of my life, I've kind of struggled with thinking, you know, am I like, I I don't fit in, I don't, I, I have trouble relating to a lot of average people. And yet when I connect with hypermobile people, it's, it's almost always like finding a long lost cousin or friend. And it's, it's just, so I, you know, I think, you know, despite all those challenges, um, there's also a lot of um, really unique and um, incredible qualities that come along with our struggles. And so being, being aware of all of that, and that's part of what, kind of troubles me about many of the narratives that are out there about hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos. Um, I once had a doctor say to me, um, you know, I'm aware EDS is a curse, you know, and I'm so sorry you have this curse. And I just was so, um, it was a complex series of emotions, but I was heartbroken and angry. And I was just thinking, yeah. this isn't a curse. The The lack of treatment and the lack of understanding, those things feel a bit like a curse sometimes. But I don't think we're mistakes. I don't think we're broken. I don't think we're mutants. I, you know, I think we're another type of people and we we have a lot to give, but unfortunately the world is largely not set up in a way for us to be able to to showcase our assets and that's why I think your work with HMSA is so incredible because you're turning that on its head and you're, you know, advocating and creating such a great community space and pro- you provide such good um, information and, um, and, and that just critically needed support. So really yeah, kudos that, to you. That's actually a very sort of conscious decision that the HMSA has taken sort of policy wise, that as an organization, we are here to provide the best support that we can for the, for the, for the Bendy people. Mm-hmm. And that means we will. We can't ever <laughs> um, use the, the sob story appeal that gets him lots of money because mm-hmm. actually that's really damaging. Agreed. Because as, as a hypermobile person, I cannot. You know, I am hypermobile. Everything I do is hypermobile. The way I eat my food is hypermobile. Mm-hmm. If I if that becomes for me. Or in, if I'm told repeatedly from people who are there to support me that I am pitiable, I couldn't I couldn't cope with that because <laughs> I'm not pitiable. I have some challenges in my life that other people don't have. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I can't have a look. I can't live a good life. It's going to be very different to an average person's. Mm-hmm. But I really like my life. Mm-hmm. And, and also I think there's the whole... When, when a, especially when a medical professional 
communicates in that style of oh yes it's so terrible for you now I can understand that they're trying to validate symptoms which Mm -hmm. is important yes that way of going about it is very disempowering because it gives me the impression that I can't I can't do anything about it so like you know when I was fairly newly diagnosed you know there's a phase of you know I've got a genetic condition that is incurable Mm-hmm. so this is me now downhill from here and actually yep. that's not true mm-hmm. this is the body I've got and I'm not going to magically unhypermobile myself mm-hmm. and I'm not going to undo the injuries and the stretch ligaments etc but mm-hmm. by learning how to respect my body how to look after it what things it likes what things it doesn't like all sorts of things that you know have opened up you know 10 years ago, I literally couldn't sit up and hold a conversation. Mm-hmm. And now look at me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's not, yeah. And in some ways, my health, like, I think some of my health sort of specifics are probably worse than they were then. Mm-hmm. But my lifestyle works for my body. My management techniques and everything have improved so much that I genuinely, genuinely enjoy my life because I've got a fulfilling life that's actually within what I'm capable of. Yes. That's such a great point. And I like how you made that point about not wanting to be seen as pitiable. And I relate to that so much because um, the reactions I've had from average people, the vast majority of them are on two poles, either one you know, it's not that bad. You can push through it kind of the, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is such a hilarious expression because you literally cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It doesn't make any sense, but, um, either that kind of mentality or, Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, you know, this doom and gloom and neither of those, um, fit for me. And I don't, I absolutely don't want to be pitied. I, you know, being pitied makes me feel small and and shuts me down emotionally because that's not at all what I want. And I think a lot of us, we, we don't want pity. We want under, we would like some understanding and, and like some, um, you know, curiosity and, and compassion, you know, if not empathy. Um, but I completely agree now that I have this explanation for all of these, um, uh, you know, I'll use your expression and say carry quirks. Um, it, it's, it's extremely empowering because a, I ha- when, a, when a new symptom or, or an old symptom arises, I have the, the search terms and I, I, I know where to start to look for answers. And I have a community of other people that I can turn to, um, either just to support and relate or, you know, for simple, great solutions. Like, you, you know, like we just kind of talked about earlier before we were on, um, on the recording. And so, um, that, that take resonates with me very deeply. Good. <laughs> it's very validating when someone else else's views and experiences are actually you know, on the same wavelength. Yes, yes, because many of us have spent so much of our life um, around, you know, mostly average people, and, and I have a similar experience to you with, you know, people c- close to you having similar symptoms, so in a way, it's all just, quote-unquote, like, 
you know, par for the course or it, it, it feels normal because it's, it's what you're sort of most closely seeing in, in yeah. your own home life. Um, but then you go out into the world and you're comparing yourself to your peers and, and you're sensing this, this not fitting in and, and that can be extremely isolating. And so when we're able to, to find each other and see that our experiences are so similar and, um, you know, I, I, the podcast at this point, I think has 44 episodes and I, and I've talked to so many people, um, in the community, I mean, beyond just the interviews and I'm consistently struck by the same kind of language, the same experiences, like we're, we're all different. We all have different specific issues and manifestations, but yet our experiences and our, um, you know, to some degree, our, our personalities, um, communication styles, we have all these similarities. So it's these strange paradoxes um, that we find ourselves in. But yeah, having having that understanding um, that we are different from the average um, and the majority of the population um, is just incredibly important. And, 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 and for, I would agree I have a similar experience with you too of, you know, some things have actually gotten worse since being diagnosed and it, there certainly are a ton of obstacles and a ton of struggle, but at least now I have a place to start when things go downhill and I have resources I can turn to and people I can turn to. And that makes all the difference in the world between something feeling catastrophic and being psychologically very, hard to deal with to making it something where you're you feel more empowered um or at the very least more supported and understood yeah definitely so switching gears a little bit um stickman communications is such a fantastic idea um i you know got into it quite a bit looking at a lot of your materials and um, and I think it's wonderful. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how that concept came about and what your goal is with this project? So um, it's a very accidental um, business. It wasn't supposed to be a business at all. So I started drawing Stickman um, when I was in hospital, sort of, fairly shortly before I got diagnosed with POTS and my POTS had gone completely out of control and landed me in hospital with stroke-like symptoms. Um, I was in for about a week and to start with, you know, I could hardly get a word out and my speech gradually improved throughout the week. But I'm a very chatty person and there were some people in the beds in the ward near me who were just really funny accidentally usually so I wanted to tell people about these funny things that were happening like the the old lady who'd throw her teacup at anyone walking past and you just just be getting on with your own business and this teacup suddenly comes bouncing out of her room (laughs) things like that just mildly entertained me Mm -hmm. so I started drawing stickmen of them because I couldn't draw anything else because I didn't have the coordination and I couldn't write them because I didn't have the brain. So I was drawing stickmen and people liked them. And then I did a few that were about, that just depicted symptoms and put them on the HMSA support group. And um, people really loved them. So, and they went, oh, why didn't you make a book of them? So that was my first product. 
was a little book of cartoons about um, hypermobility. I love and that then, story. And then me and a friend were chatting, a bendy friend, um, about how annoying it was when if you fell over in public, someone will come and try and haul you up. Mm-hmm. And it's like that's the worst possible thing to do because A, you'll probably remove the arm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and B, if I've just fallen over, I'm probably potsy, so I'm just going to fall over again. Mm-hmm. And you stand me up when I'm not ready. Mm-hmm. So kind of a bit tongue-in-cheek. She's like, oh, why don't you make some cards with your, key- with your stick men on? So I literally just made a set of cards for her and a set of cards for, for me about, yeah, I think there was a pain one, a um, don't touch me if I fall over one, sometimes I flop. So there's a little sort of maybe six or seven cards and I put them on my blog and then suddenly other people were asking for them. They're like, oh, I relate to that. Can I have a copy? So I you know, printed about 30 and they sold. It's just kind of grown from there. But that's also how the biz- how all the other topics have grown by people saying, can you make something, make something for? So I think fairly uniquely in sort of communication card world, everything that we've made is where people who've got a condition and have experienced misunderstandings and unrealistic expectations and people not taking their needs seriously, et cetera, et cetera, um, saying, help me fix this. And then I work with them and I work with the, that dis- that section of the disabled community to come up with something that a big chunk of people will relate to, but also something that the people who don't know anything about it can also relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where this, this stick men come in, because what we've seen is that people tend to see the picture go I can at some point in my life I've felt like that stick man mm-hmm. and then they start then they read it with a completely different starting point mm-hmm. like if you know if the stick man is chained to the sofa and then he says I have a condition that causes fatigue and etc tells you I can't function basically mm-hmm. um at some point in their life they'll have felt like that and, go, and they, they kind of go, oh, oh, that's what you mean. That's what fatigue Oh, okay. In that case, let's stop at a coffee shop mm-hmm. <laughs> every every hour instead of trying to do the whole lot I want. Um, so, yeah, it's just sort of growing from there. So in a way, it kind of doesn't have a specific goal other than to give individuals, like, a way of creating that understanding that they need without spending the entire life explaining on repeat again and again and again. Absolutely. And that's such a fantastic story. And it's so empowering because I love how you were able to take what was, you know, a really difficult, I imagine, very scary experience and, and, and turn that into action and and that it inspired you to to work within the means that you had at that time to create means of awareness but it it wasn't just beneficial to you during that time you were in the hospital it it grew and grew and I love that kind of grassroots you know putting something out there for the community it resonates and then you get feedback from the community that makes it even better and and different and I love those those very simple 
ways of explaining things to people because it, it, it is really hard for average people to accept and and it's scary for them, I can understand, to look at someone who to their naked eye looks quote unquote healthy, whatever that means, um, and to understand that there's so much going on underneath the surface, especially when there's just so little awareness, shockingly little awareness of connective tissue conditions and hypermobility in, I mean, the community at large, but also, frankly, among the medical profession as well, which is its own um, can of worms, I guess. But I, I personally, I, I really like the metaphor of the orchid and the dandelion. Um, there's a book on it, but I've read some, some articles on it. And I, I can't remember the author who came up with this originally. I'll, I'll see if I can find it to link for this episode. But the basic premise is that um, some people are really more like orchids where they need very specific conditions to thrive. Um, and some people are more like dandelions. They can be planted anywhere and, yeah. and thrive. And those kind of simple metaphors, and, and I think Stickman is, is even way beyond that, way, way better. Um, but something that just gets people to reference something they already know or they've already experienced and, and your cartoons are you know, these little stickman, um, uh, communications. They're, they're just, they're, they're fun and they're, and they cut to that understanding in, like you said, in, in a way quicker, more emotionally impactful way than us constantly wasting our breath, trying to explain what is very hard for people to accept given the current state of understanding and awareness. Yeah. And, um, what's I going to say? I was going to say something about, about brain fog <laughs> and now my brain fog stolen it. <laughs> oh yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> um, you know, some people are like, well, why would you use a card when you can talk? Mm-hmm. And I had, so, so they were trying to understand why I was running this business. Needless to say, they were not disabled in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so when I explained to them that actually sometimes I can't talk, sometimes I go nonverbal. And then sometimes I can't string my words together accurately enough. Mm-hmm. So trying to get across a really important but also very complex thing, I can't actually do it effectively. Mm-hmm. And then you have the whole thing of people only hear part of what you say. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you give it to them on written, they actually process it very differently. So there are so many... And when you've got limited energy, it's like, well, am I going to spend 50% of my precious energy on explaining to people exactly what I need? Mm-hmm. Or should I just wave a card at them? I'll go yep. for waving the card and it works really quite well. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just, it's a great story all around. And it's, it's a testament to the extraordinary resilience that I've seen in this community that, um, you know, we many people in this community really endeavor hard to do what we can given our circumstances. And, you know, and I've seen people, you know, just do incredible things in amazing adverse circumstances, not to discount in the least, you know, the people that, you know, suffered very deeply and, um, you know, are, are unable to, to come up with these um, kinds of tools for, 
for communication because, like I said, there's a huge spectrum and a huge amount of difference in functionality and um, symptoms, brain fog, all of that. But um, I love that your tool, you know, you you created, you know, for yourself, but then you're able to to share it and have it resonate and work for for so many others. And and I think our strength really is in, as a community in that kind of coming together and and collaborating and uh, doing what we can to help each other and and allowing ourselves to to be helped when when we need it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Your diagnosis story is so fascinating, and unfortunately, so many of us struggle with symptoms for a very long time before being diagnosed. Do you have thoughts on why this is such an issue with awareness of conditions relating to hypermobility and connective tissue? Um, I think there are several sort of interwoven threads. I mean, one is the sort of fairly obvious one of as a the medical profession like to diagnose based on specifics and there isn't a single test that will tell you yes this person is hypermobile like you can't do x-rays or blood tests or anything like that to create a definitive diagnosis and then I think it's further complicated by the fact that the degree the visible degree of flexibility doesn't correlate with the amount of disability. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult. So then, you know, if you're as a medical profession, you might have seen 20 people who haven't complained about joint pain and have got and are really flexible. And then you see this one person who's, yeah, a bit flexible, but not that bad. And they're complaining of massive pain and using a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. So it's on the surface you know, in that 20-minute consultation that a rheumatologist might have, you know, it it's not a, you know, it's a very confusing condition because, you know, you would expect the more hypermobile person to be more severely affected, and that's not actually how it works. So I think those, um, and of course, then that can feed the sort of disbelief, mm-hmm. you know, I know someone more flexible but less severely affected than you. Therefore, it must be your attitude that needs adjusting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of attitude. Um, so I think, and and the and if you've already subscribed to that mindset, then the sort of additional conditions that can come along with it, like the autonomic dysfunction stomach issues etc they can it's easy to also to sweep them off with the same brush oh Mm -hmm. no it must be must be psychosomatic I mean I was actually undiagnosed fairly recently I say fairly recently it might be about eight years ago now but I was very thoroughly diagnosed understood myself really well I think at that point I was senior volunteer at the HMSA but regularly did you know lectures and educational sessions for professionals and for patients and you know and then this this <laughs> rheumatologist turned around and said oh, oh you first he refused to examine me then he refused to refer me to physiotherapy because I didn't need it um, and then he wrote me a letter saying how I'd acquired a label of POTS and only demonstrated hypermobility in my finger. And that was literally 
I'd said to him, look, my fingers roll up. I'm hypermobile. I rolled my finger out of joint and said it, that happens all over. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't asked me anything else. Mm-hmm. From that, he concluded I was only hypermobile in my finger. Ugh. And, yeah, so he, he had a special interest in um, psychosomatic disorders. So he diagnosed me with one of them and told me oh. and told, told my entire healthcare team to withdraw all POTS medication. Oh, I'm so sorry. That is horrendous. Uh, fortunately, so I was in a really privileged position because I basically turned around and laughed at him mm-hmm. um, in letter form. And he is no longer seeing hypermobile patients. Good. Good for there you. Were, there were several other people who also had that you know, just within the HMSA. And there was at least one other member who'd also seen the same guy and put in the same kind of complaint. And yes, so then when I next saw the... I then forced... I then called the physio team that he'd refused to refer me to and wangled an an appointment anyway because I'd seen them before and they knew it was a legit request. Mm-hmm. Um. And, yeah, they said that that particular doctor was no longer seeing hypermobile patients. That's but so great. I think that's the, the, that kind of demonstrates what happens when, you know, when a professional seeing this, well, you're less bendy but more symptomatic, therefore it can't be hypermobility. Mm-hmm. If they've fallen down that rabbit hole, you know, it can easily escalate into this, you know, complete disbelief of really obvious things mm-hmm. it's horrendous mm. and honestly that that's I'm so glad for you for sticking up for yourself and for um you know pushing to get the care that you needed and for you know alerting others about this misconception because you know as I'm sure you're well aware this is a huge issue in the community and I am just so frustrated of this um contingent let's say of doctors or this school of thought that says if i can't obviously see this with my eyes and you know you you look you know relatively average um these complaints you're having must be psychosomatic and it's there's so many just very unsound uh quote-unquote scientific articles and i mean this this thinking is very pervasive and it's happened to other conditions too. Um, yeah. In the documentary Unrest, they talk about um, a condition, and I can never remember if it was MS or cystic fibrosis. I think it might have been multiple sclerosis, but a condition that we now um, basically universally accept as being very much physical. Um, those patients were written off as psychosomatic malingerers, fakers, whatever, until the CT scan was discovered. And then you could obviously see what was going on with them. And it's just so preposterous to me that these, you know, a lot of physicians who, um, you know, some of whom are being paid handsomely by the patients that are going to see them can have this, um, you know, frankly, ignorant mentality um, towards these conditions. And some of them will even ignore, um, you know, the, the objective evidence of hypermobility, like, um, you know, the Biden score and, and the different hypermobility measures are one, but POTS is, you know, measured. Um, yeah, my heart rate hit 180 and he'd got the report that, you know, I stood up and it was measured at 180. And it's like, 
how can you possibly then just write that off as a nothing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not how life works. No, no. And it's, ugh, it's, it's horrible because it, it really leads to, you know, many people are not in as knowledgeable and as empowered of a position as, as you've really worked yeah. to be in. And so um, it's, it's incredibly damaging um, for a lot of people to have that mentality. And I've heard of absolute horror stories um, of children being taken away from their parents and, um, you know, people being just driven to the, the, the most, you know, the darkest places because it's incredibly painful and damaging to go to someone for help um, whose job is to help you. I mean, it's bad enough when your friends and family and others don't understand, but when it's someone's job to try to help you feel better and they just choose to, to not believe you and to ignore the evidence um, it's, it's really terrible. And so a big kudos to you for, um, pushing back against that. And I'm so happy to hear he's no longer seeing hypermobile patients, but, but the thing is he probably is seeing undiagnosed hypermobile patients. And so it's something that, you know, these awareness efforts are really incredibly, you know, critically important to, to help educate the general public so that people don't fall into these rabbit holes of being treated as you know, having a psychological condition when, when what we need is physical treatment. Yeah. And I think it is even more complicated than that because you know, once you've had, once you've had your fingers burn on the psychological thing, mm-hmm. it, it kind of means any mention of psychological and all your barriers go up. I'm like, this person's talking nonsense, mm-hmm. but of course, you know, there's a huge all of us are going to struggle with mental health at some point mm-hmm. because of the amount of stuff we're dealing with so you kind of have this thing where yes you know and like relaxation can help in pain management not because the pain's in your in some imagined thing but because stress worsens pain yes yes <laughs> but it but then it becomes a huge challenge as a patient who's been disbelieved and had it all dismissed to then you know find that healthy balance of actually yeah there are there is a psychological element to my life mm-hmm. <laughs> that that you know I can and I, I can use that to my advantage you know I can there are techniques on the psychological side that can help me cope with my physical Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to find that when you've been whacked over the head repeatedly um, with the, we don't believe anything you say. It's all yes. psychosomatic. Yes. You know, there is no reason for your pain. And I'm sitting there going, uh, my shoulder was right out of its joint. Mm-hmm. I think that counts as valid cause. Yep. Yeah. And often the same people saying that kind of thing, if their own shoulder was out, I'm sure they would be just weeping in a total wreck. And we're um, so used to a lot of these things that our reactions are not what, you know, an average person would have experiencing the exact same thing because we deal with it so much. But that doesn't mean that in the aggregate, it doesn't get to us and that it doesn't affect us and that it's, 
it's not important. And, and I agree, it's, it's important to, um, you know, learn the psychological tools or, or learn, you know, tools for st- stress reduction and pain management, pacing, all of these things. But that's hard um, when, you know, you've been told that something's in your head and you know it's not. And so, but I think the advocacy work you and your organization do are making great strides in helping to bridge what seems like an unbridgeable gap. So I think, I think having, um, so like one of our volunteers at the HMSA is Kim Clayden, who's a, um, psychotherapist. So, you know, she's lived it. She's got lived experience of all sorts of things that being bendy can throw at you. And she's been really ill at points. And then she's found things that have helped her. So she's not, so she can say things that in a way that really respects that, you know, that physical cause for your pain is there. You know, I, I can't, but if here are the, you know, some psychological tools. And I, so I think being a, a patient-centred and patient-led organisation is, that that that's one of its strengths. Because... As a patient, hearing another patient saying, here are some things that have helped and this is why they helped, that's much more relatable and understandable and more likely to be heard than a medical professional who belongs to that same group that has dismissed you and ignored you, telling you the same information. Because they, that starting point assumption is, actually, they do know what they're talking about because they've lived it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you clearly have made huge strides in improving your health um, in some ways um, after discovering your medical conditions. Are there any insights you'd like to share about that process for our listeners or any particular tips you have for others out there who are struggling with how to manage their hypermobility condition? Well, that's a big question that is, and I've probably talk for days on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think... Um, the, I share a few of the sort of light bulb moments that really helped me. So one was physiotherapy. So I've been doing physiotherapy for several years since diagnosis and it wasn't really getting me anywhere. Um, and I'd very much sort of been led to believe that, you know, no pain, no gain, push yourself, don't give in, all that kind of um, attitude and um, let's just say I got worse to the point I landed in hospital for five weeks and during that time I had physiotherapy and one day he walked into the ward and basically refused to to allow me to exercise this is a physiotherapist and I was like but I have to it's like no you're too tired if you're too tired to exercise, then you shouldn't be exercising. And this was a completely new concept. And so then the next day he allowed me to try walking. And then when he saw that my what my left leg was going, which is what it does when I'm potsy, um, he literally refused to allow me to continue and put me back in bed. And I was terrified that I was going to get worse because I wasn't exercising enough. 
Mm-hmm. But then the next day I could walk twice the distance mm-hmm. until that same symptom hit and he was like, stop, no more, back to bed. Then the next day I could probably walk double the distance again because it was like, and it, so it's like the light bulb of, if I, if I can't actually do that movement perfectly, I shouldn't be doing it. And if it's something that I have to do for some reason, then it not, doesn't really count as exercise if I'm doing it in that kind of f- desperate zombie flop mode, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I have done a lot in that mode. Because um, then you know the body's not able to use it in a constructive way. So that allowing myself to completely back off when I'm not capable of exercising safely and healthily has actually led me to make huge strides in my overall strength and fitness despite sort of ironically almost doing less (laughs) that's such an important message and um recently we've had a series with several um physical therapists and um an occupational therapist and that message has been coming up a lot that you know for us you know, rest is really necessary. And, and it's, and yet it's so hard to undo those cultural narratives because it is very prevalent in our society, this no pain, no gain, you push through, you push, push, push. But for those of us who have kind of hit the symptomatic wall, um, many of us later in life, but it it happens to children too. Um, And being able to understand your condition and know that um, taking this day off, um, it's possible that, you know, things are going downhill or deteriorating, but allowing yourself that time to pause and rest um, often then gives you that opportunity to, you know, I I was going to say fight another day, but I, you know, (laughs) fight is not the right word. It's just live another day and, and try another day. And that that's a better, not even just better that like that's the only way for many of us to um actually make any gains and that our bodies are different in that way because um when we burn out we we burn out hard we crash hard sometimes and 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 that's i'm so glad you shared that story because um i've read articles you know talking about you know when you're sick with like you know obviously with coronavirus this has come up a lot but when you have symptoms you know, when should you exercise and when should you not? And so I'm glad to see that the idea is starting to make its way out there, although way too little, way too late, that actually sometimes taking um, that time to allow your body to repair um, is actually way more beneficial in the long run than pushing through and adding another injury to what you were already dealing with. So yeah, it's a great point. And also, so I was chatting with a... Um friend about it yesterday actually seeing it as seeing these sort of rest periods and downtime actually as an investment Mm -hmm. because if I if I manage my symptoms now then I'm going to be able to achieve far more in the long run Mm -hmm. than if I push through and there, there are obviously times that it's just push through or nothing and you know that that happens, but then being also then being prepared for the fallout from that. Yes. So, um, 
I went to a sort of garden party yesterday or barbecue with friends. And then I stayed in bed until about six o'clock this evening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and But I was prepared for that. And also when you're prepared for the consequences, they stop being this sort of... Um, they stop being a big deal and it stops feeling like they're stealing your life. Yes. Because when, when you do things and then the effects hit you like a steam train, it it does feel like, you know, your condition is stealing your life. At least it did for me. But now that I, over time, I've grown more and more to understand how my body reacts to things. Um, and... And I've also learned that if I rest, then that severity will pass and then I can pick up again and do more. Um, but being prepared for any patch that I know that's going to be a rough patch. So even like my hormones, yeah, that week, it's called Splat Week. I clear the diary. I buy in ready prep snacks. I will put the box of snacks by my bed so that I literally only have to leave bed to go to the loo. I have a box of things that can keep me entertained. I make sure I've got a couple of audio books at the right mental level, i.e. familiar and probably childish. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know those are the things that will help me through. They'll let me recharge, but also keep me entertained keep me fed okay maybe I'm not getting the fully completely balanced diet but you know what that's fine it will tide me over nicely until I've recharged enough to then go back to my normal level of functioning that's such a great tip and I I love how you call it splat week because I know exactly what you're talking about (laughs) and this has been a big um realization of me for me in the past few years um the the cyclical nature of the symptoms and finally, having the, the diagnoses, um, and which allowed me to start paying more attention to myself and feeling like a more active participant with my own body, um, has allowed me to realize that in that time leading up to splat week, and then splat week, my joints become so much looser. Um, you know, my hips go from popping out a few times a day to like, you know, seemingly every time I move. And allowing myself to say, and, and, and not even just allowing myself, knowing that, okay, I'm, I'm on this downturn, but you know, before I despair, before I start to panic, I'm going to give it another week. And then, you know, very often um, you get through that and then, then you're on an upward trajectory. And so just knowing that those cycles are there and I love how you, you plan for them, you know, in a very, Uh, methodical way knowing what you need during that time and yeah I think that's incredibly important advice but it takes all the pressure off and I I also kind of deliberately put my expectations at absolutely rock bottom Mm -hmm. so actually last splat week I actually managed to do a bit more than I was expecting so I actually like cleaned the kitchen during that week and could do it well within my energy capacity. I was really pleased with myself. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I think the expectations. It's a very, I guess that's another tip. 
allow yourself to reduce your expectations Mm -hmm. and then find out what you can actually achieve Mm -hmm. and measure them against you not not other people because other people's scales are just way off Mm -hmm. (laughs) definitely yeah I think that's yeah expectations um are so important and in general it's good life advice having having lower expectations we're we're, again kind of like the no pain no gain I think we're kind of culturally inured to the idea that we should have high expectations for the world and for others but first and foremost for ourselves and when we're not able to meet those high expectations that's that, that can feel either mildly annoying or devastating depending on the circumstances and what what we're able to do and what is reasonably can be expected of us is different from a, a quote-unquote average person and so I, I think that's that's also a really a great point yeah. so your advocacy work is incredibly impressive um, how do you manage all of that along with the symptoms of your medical issues? We've talked about some of your um, kind of tips and strategies, but um, you, you really are able to and, and have and have done a lot. Um, but how have you navigated that um, balance? I think I've been, I've been thinking about this thinking, how do I do it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think the answer is actually that I've, built in myself it's almost like I've been able to turn my own self-management into advocacy and awareness raising so for example I discovered that if I behave differently with confidence with my management techniques like lying down in public 99% of people accept it so it means that you know I can you know just write a post about something I've done and people will find it useful because, and um, sorry, my my brain is. Oh, hang on, I need to take my jumper off because I've just over. I realise I've overheated, so my brain is. <laughs> no worries. Hotsing. Excuse yeah. me. Let me just open the window as well. Sounds good. I'm doing the same thing. I'm putting my jacket on and off because I'm getting hot and cold. But our our internal thermostats are so sensitive. <laughs> yes, and sometimes slightly deluded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right, okay, that should be a bit better now. And I've had a quick wiggle as well while I was at it. So, right, so where were we? (laughs) Talking about how you use your um, experiences to... self-management as advocacy. So, um, like, if if I do a talk on for the HMSA, for example, then, you know, part of my, you know, people might check for parking and things like that before they turn up. And I would actually say, right, I'm going to need space to lie down before and after. Um, and when I do the talk, I say, look, you know, I might lose my, my speech might go slurred. It's okay. This is what I would do and it'd be fine. I might pop a wrist out. If anyone's squeamish, please raise your hand and I will do it discreetly. <laughs> I'll put it back in discreetly, you know, so... The, the, the things that allow me to function are also really effective. They get also get the point across really well. Because I think with, especially with medical professionals, in their heads sometimes, it seems as though 
they're constantly worried people are kind of amplifying their symptoms and getting obsessed by them um and that's partly why they and that's part of why the symptoms are so severe that's just sort of an impression I often get Mm -hmm. but when the patient (laughs) quite cheerfully crawls across the stage to get to the um microphone you can always I can always watch them kind of having to adjust their ideas because this ex this expert patient clearly isn't afraid of moving mm-hmm. they're not overly reliant on their wheelchair and it it makes them more receptive because suddenly they're like okay so <laughs> you have to rethink my um initial of some assumptions yeah so I think and all my work kind of everything I do is very interlinked and also if the the only careers I can think of where turning around and going you know what I can't function well enough to do that so I'm not doing it is a bonus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, so there, there have been times when I've, you know, people have emailed me with a request and I've replied going, look, really sorry, I am not functioning today, so can we try again on Monday? And that actually has strengthened my business because people know it's real. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, I've been fortunate enough to be able to kind of not just have a lifestyle but also a career I guess where my limitations quirks pacing requirements can all be very naturally absorbed into the business that's and also and also things like pre-scheduling tools on for social media where you can you know write the next month's posts or the next week and a half's posts mm-hmm. all in advance mm-hmm. i tell you what those are amazing the number of t- <laughs> so before splat week you know mm-hmm. <laughs> i spend the, the day before <laughs> i make sure i've got a full 10 days all lined up and my business keeps on functioning although and but also i've i have a so I pay someone to come and do some of the bits of the business that I find most difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm lucky to be in a position to do that. But I also think it's very important that people don't think that every person's got a different role to play in life. Yes. And there's no point in looking at someone else and thinking, "God, I never can. I could never do that." Mm-hmm. Because, well, of course you can't, because you're not them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I find myself looking at um, some of the other people and thinking, oh, if only I could do that. It's like, but no, that's that's not my role. That's their role. I need to find where, where I fit. And my where I fit just happens to be quite visible. And there's an awful lot of people who aren't very visible in that ter- in terms of you know, public persona, as it were. Um actually are also doing really valuable stuff 
Um, I mean, whether that's just looking after yourself or looking after your family, you know, that's still um, incredibly valuable. So I guess I'm trying to say, don't think that you need to try and follow in my footsteps in order to be a valuable member of a community, because it's really, really not for everyone. Absolutely. And I, I, that was so well said in so many ways. And I admire you so much for um, respecting your body in that way and, and for being open and, and the, like the way you described, you know, when you're, when you give a talk, kind of giving that preface of, you know, I, I may have to, you know, I may have a POTS episode. I may, um, you know, kind of giving, it's not a disclaimer exactly, but giving that information in context. And so allowing yourself to, um, be seen when you're not, you know, in ideal condition, which we rarely are, and not feeling the need to just put on the happy face, um, because that's a trap that I've certainly fallen into a lot, because I, I've certainly gotten a lot of blank faces, or or even kind of um, antagonistic responses, when I actually do open up about my symptoms. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, I've felt the need to kind of hide a lot of it from the people that are close to me for fear of alienating them. And, and it is different, you know, dealing when you're giving a talk or when you're working with the hypermobile community and there's yes. a sort of bigger level of base understanding, but I, I really admire your, um, you know, really taking ownership of, and, and getting to know yourself and knowing what you need um, to be able to function and, you know, to the extent you're able. And, uh, you know, there can be a lot of shame that goes with this condition. And like you said, that, that tendency to look at other people, um, and think, gosh, if only I could do that. And it's, it's such a, uh, an easy thought that comes to mind, but it's so damaging because like you said, we're not them. And the time we spend, um, you know, th th that I've certainly spent, um, you know, thinking about, you know, how functional even I used to be, but, and looking at others, um, it, that's really emotionally taxing and, and doesn't get me anywhere. But when I focus on what I can do and, and respect my limitations and, um, you know, treat my body well, um, everything seems to go, everything just flows better for the most part. And so I, I really admire, your openness to talk about these things that are, are, are taboos in a, in a lot of respects. Yeah. I think one thing that I found really helpful is the realization that a lot of people's sort of the negative reaction to like saying no to helping with something is actually because they are scared that I might give up on life entirely because that's, what they think they would do if they had the symptoms that they understand from mm -hmm. that I have. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not really how humans work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they probably wouldn't. But what I've found is that if I, that when they've then seen me doing my self-management things, like, um, pretty much everyone at church now knows that Hannah might go and lie down quietly in a corner at mm -hmm. any point in time mm -hmm. and they're all fine with it. Mm -hmm. But 
part of that is I had to go through a little bit of a pain barrier. But once I'd done it once or twice, people realised that then instead of sitting blankly or going home, I was coming back and joining in again mm-hmm. and much being much more myself because I'd just recharged enough to function. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and people realised that when, when you are physically demonstrate, if I do this... I function better, everything is better. Mm-hmm. Then people start to, uh, then people will accept it because they suddenly know that I'm not, um, I'm not withdrawing. I'm actually being more involved. Definitely. And it's, I, I love it, that you're... It's a really scary thing to start. Yes. Because initially people are going to all raise their eyebrows, which Mm -hmm. is partly why I have a card that says I lie down to manage a medical condition. Mm -hmm. It does that initial communication and helps them on their way to acceptance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then they, then they see that actually, no, I do function better when I do these strange, socially unacceptable things. I love that you modeled that behavior because I like to make the point and, and I relate to that so much because, um, I, I struggle with, um, pretty, um, severe neck instability. And I I like to say, um, when I'm lying flat on my back, I, I, I pretty much like who I am as a person. And I think I can be compassionate and understanding and curious and, and I like myself, but when I've been upright, for too long or in strain for too long um i can get irritable i can get you know i i I don't like that version of myself as much and so i i I often dream of a world that had better places to be able to lie down and and i i I call it putting the blood back in my head um and I, i think that's part of it but i think it's also taking some of the strain off my poor muscles and ligaments that are struggling to hold up my head. Um, but, you know, with that ability, um, you know, w- or with that access, there, there's so much more than I'd, that I'd be able to do and, and participate more fully in society. And, and the isolation that we experience can be devastating. And I like to make the point that Every person, you know, hypermobile, average, you know, different medical condition, everyone can find themselves in a position of reduced mobility or reduced function. And so having a more accessible society, which you are, you know, very much advocating for in a way that's, you know, interesting and different and, and actually kind of fun and, um, you know, very exciting like that it's important and and it has the potential to benefit the broader community um you know if they break a leg or you know they have a let's say they have long covid symptoms or something like that um but everybody could benefit from a society that's more understanding and more tolerant of the physical spectrum that is extraordinarily real um and and acutely real for us bendy folk <laughs> So I noticed on the HMSA website that there's a discussion of the HMSA educational model. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about what that is and how it can be helpful for people with hypermobility conditions? So it's um, a project that is aiming to 
ed- basically educates the professionals while also providing that um, the patient support group so we can say to the professionals, because of course they don't have time or actually the insight to you know answer the everyday questions that bendy people have and the questions of specific life events or how might this affect my pregnancy you know the things you want to chat through most professionals simply don't have time to do that so being able to kind of join the two together well we can say look we can educate you on hypermobility how to support your patients um what the the linked conditions are etc etc and then also you can refer your patients to our support groups and to our website and we will ensure they get effective evidence-based management information and um, the support that they need um, rather than kind of separating the two. (laughs) So it kind of brings those together and creates a more cohesive um, sort of process for your hypermobile patient. That's wonderful. And it's, it's such a needed resource and we'll include links to the HMSA website um, and to the Stigman materials with the episode notes for this, if anyone's interested in diving further. But um, that's, that's exactly the kind of um, education that we need. And it's, and, and that model is, is just wonderful. So, um, you know, thank you and your organization for, for providing that. I know I've learned a ton and even, um, you know, following on social media and, and stuff, it's just, it's really, it's really wonderful. And it's a, it's a message and a narrative about hypermobility that, that I really relate to. And, and I struggle to find those. I find a lot that I don't relate to, but, um, but this one, um, it, it speaks to me. So. That's really good to know. So let's talk a little bit about all the acronyms in this space. Um, So there's JHS, uh, EDS and HSD, and you have a great piece on the HMSA website about all of the confusion surrounding the diagnostic, the diagnostic guidelines as they are. Um, Could you explain a little bit about this confusion and how that interacts with the diagnostic codes that are being used by doctors? Okay, I shall do my best. (laughs) So basically, with hypermobile people, there is a subgroup of them who have a genetically identifiable, specific, well-established condition, like Marfan syndrome, um, Louis Dietz syndrome, if I don't know if I said that right, Mm -hmm. um, some of the types of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, like classical Ehlers-Danlos, vascular Ehlers-Danlos, dermatopraxis. There's about, I think there's 12 types that are specifically genetically identified, identifiable. So those are all in, put those in one group of the people we know about. Mm-hmm. We know exactly what condition they have. Mm-hmm. And then there's a sort of very big group that might be as many as I don't know, as three or five percent of the population, which is quite a lot of people. Yes. Um, have are hypermobile and have problems. So that might be pain, fatigue, autonomic issues, digestive issues. Um, and some of these people 
we're pretty sure have a connective tissue disorder. Some of these people, we don't know whether they have a condition, have a connective tissue disorder or not. Um, you know, it, it might be because the shape of joints can affect, can make you hypermobile as well. It's not mm -hmm. only the ligaments, but you might also have ligaments that are long or stretched, but aren't actually more fragile. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got this big pe group of people who are bendy and have problems. So they, we're trying to separate these out. So JHS, joint hypermobility syndrome, or benign joint hypermobility syndrome, as it historically, very historically has been, is you know, was one term. And then hypermobile EDS was another term and it used to be called EDS3. Um, so then they, so in an attempt to kind of try and separate out some of the different groups within this big group of bendies, um, we have the 2017 criteria, which is a research criteria. So to become a diagnostic criteria, there's a whole series of validation processes and um, checking that has to be done for it to then become right. Yes, this is definitely its own condition. So the 2017 criteria are, are kind of like a step two of that long process. So there are some professionals who use that hypermobile EDS 2019 criteria and the HSD criteria, but there's also professionals who don't because they're like, well, it's not a diagnostic criteria yet. And I don't want to diagnose people with a condition they might not have and keep changing their diagnosis because nobody likes that. That's really traumatic as a patient. And yes. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, so there are then a lot of professionals who prefer to give that generic symptomatic hypermobility that says, we don't know exactly what brand you have because there's also... Um, it's not clear whether everyone who meets that HEADS criteria has the same condition or do they? is that a group of conditions and does it accurately show everyone within this boundary, no, everyone outside the boundary has a completely separate thing or is it, yeah, there's so many unknowns, so much more research that needs to be done that 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 criteria is a really useful step in the right direction. But there's so many unknowns, there's so many different ways of interpreting it all at this early stage that, um, you know, different professionals have different, different views. And so the HMSA's view is, you know what, we have to accept that at the moment, professionals are going to be using different terms. But with all with everything within this big group of symptomatic hypermobility um, that aren't those specific rare conditions, at the moment, whatever your diagnosis, whether you fit the criteria or on the 2017 criteria or not, it's all got the same. Everyone is. <laughs> How do I put this? My brain's slowing down. Um, the management is the same. The potential for different, there is potential for all the different um, common comorbidities like mast cell activation, um, autonomic dysfunction, 
digestive issues, pelvic floor issues, all the rest of it. So they haven't yet, there aren't at the moment, there aren't any dividing lines which have a direct um, impact on any of the practical things that patients need to know. So our view is whatever you've been diagnosed with, run with it or possibly don't run pace yes. yourself yes <laughs> and but yeah but you don't if you've been diagnosed as having hsd there isn't any need to seek the head's diagnosis because it actually doesn't change what what that diagnosis tells about you mm-hmm. and although historically you know eds has been taken more seriously Actually, any doctor who knows properly how to support someone with heads would also know how to support someone with the HSD or JHS diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So, um, and if you keep asking for the EDS diagnosis and you haven't got any of the markers for the rare stuff, you're, there's, there's a risk of... Um, how do I say this? For a medical professional, it can make them less inclined to help you because they feel like you're diagnosis shopping. Mm-hmm. And for them, you know, their perspective might be, well, this isn't a diagnostic criteria, so I'm not using it yet. And you're asking them to diagnose them with something that technically doesn't exist and it's all it all becomes very confusing. Well, it is all very confusing. Um so if you get a whatever label you get you're given if it includes hypermobility <laughs> stick with it mm-hmm. and use the hmsa's website that's again you know the hmsa's website is deliberately not about eds it's about hypermobility all causes and how that can be managed and some of the spin-off related conditions um and it's, it's made more complicated by the fact that, you know, there isn't a diagnostic code for HSD. There is a diagnostic code for EDS mm-hmm. and a diagnostic code for hypermobility. Mm-hmm. So any doctor who tries to use the new criteria can't actually make a meaningful record of it that differentiates it from JHS, etc. So we're not, it is something we're moving towards as more research happens. But I think at the moment it's like we we just have to live with the current chaos and it's made simpler if you just put them all back in one block and say those terms all refer to a big group of people with a big range of severities and link conditions and everything else. But at the moment we can't reliably say who's got what and, and then focus on those on management and um, diagnosing any linked conditions instead. That's such an important point to make. And I thank you for making it because there is so much um, angst in the community about the 2017 guidelines. And I, I really feel for the people who lost their AGDS diagnosis or, or were unable to get it um, because of the criteria and are stuck in kind of HSD no man's land and how it feels to them in, in the medical community. 
And it's such an important point to make that those criteria have not been rigorously validated. And I actually just pulled it up to look. Um, and the last sentence of the, um, the, the classification that was published in the American Journal of Genetics um, it says that we hope that the revised international EDS clarification will serve as a new standard for the diagnosis of EDS. And it's, it's so, it's so troubling and getting that context from you makes sense. Um, they're being proposed as diagnostic criteria, but they've always struck me as research criteria because they include things like, um, you know, having a first degree relative, you know, how can, how can having a first degree relative be diagnosed be necessary to you getting any diagnosis, especially in this space where we know under diagnosis and lack of acknowledgement is a huge issue. So there's so many things that just are so strange to me about the 2017 framework and, and the suggestion that it should be used for diagnosis when it hasn't gone through the typical process of creating diagnostic criteria. And so, yeah, I very much hope for a day when there's um, uh, more clarity and, and more research that grounds um, all of this uh, more in fact and, and is more relevant to treating the problems that people have and not just, you know, looking for all of these genes. I think it's important to, to know the genes. And obviously, you know, that can, can lead way down the road to potential treatments, but it's, to me, it's far more important to um, acknowledge the, the symptoms and the lived experience and, and meet people where they're at. And that's why I describe, you know, my condition, um, you know, in terms of the hypermobility um, part of it. And I also think that's much more descriptive um, and helps people understand, you know, what I'm living with better than, you know, as I say all the time, the words Ehlers-Danlos and syndrome, none of that tells anyone anything about what I'm experiencing. Who doesn't know, you know, the, the, the background? And so um, uh, the, I love that the, the HMSA is um, geared towards the broader hypermobile community and not just the small subset that fit into this, um, you know, the, the 2017 standard, which, um, you know, a lot of members of the community have raised um, very legitimate questions about. So I, I think that's great. And I, I, I do know that they've been doing a lot of research on those criteria. Um, so I'm hoping that we might not be too far away of an up, updated one version that is more evidence, you know, that is, is more evidence-based um, and, you know, a step closer to clarity. Because also when you've got a condition that is so misunderstood in the medical profession, there, there is, it's almost like the standard of the criteria in the evidence base has to be much higher in mm -hmm. order to help get them on, on track on our side. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, um, so yeah, I'm I'm be intrigued to see. Um, I'm looking forward to when they um, when we hear about the results of their um, reviewing of the criteria. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not quite sure where where that would be. And I, I probably should say that I do have a bit of an ulterior 
vested interest, that's the word, um, in, in this, the interpretation of you know, the criteria in, in saying, look, it is one big group of people and we can't yet accurately identify between two. We, we, we're making progress, but there's a difference between a really good step in the right direction and landing on the end space. Because mm-hmm. um, I'm someone who was diagnosed with as having EDS. And now, I, I do, not only do I not fit the criteria for heads, I also do not fit the criteria for HSD. That's very strange. And, and I've... And I've so yeah. I'm hypermobile. My, so when I say I'm hypermobile, it's like, you no, know, the whole how my hands bend, mm-hmm. how, I, how I sit comfortably and mm-hmm. twist, and it's all very bendy. Mm-hmm. I could do all sorts of party tricks as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, my fingers roll out of joint, my wrists come out of joint, my elbows come out of joint, my ribs come out of joint, my sacroiliac joints come out mm-hmm. <laughs> I am extremely hypermobile. However, I only score one on the Bacon scale. So I, I don't, the only thing that I qualify for would be localised hypermobility affected in every joint. <laughs> No, yeah. I know I am in a way an extreme example, but I have met quite a number of other people who have a very similar experience to me. And it's like, well, I wonder if we have a similar brand of hypermobility here. Yes. Um, and so, I, yeah, I do think the, the Biden, um, the limitations of Biden have been really problematic because, yeah. um, as we know, there are a lot of joints in the body and, you know, there's nine points on that questionnaire and and we we know that um you know we we start we all start out more hypermobile in youth and many of us kind of stiffen up or you know in my case I used to be um seven out of nine on the scale but I've had both hips tightened extremely after labral tears and spine surgery and so I, I think I lost a point but it it's not like I'm less hypermobile or it's not like my condition has improved. It's like there have been, you know, in my case, specific surgical interventions that have modified my body. Um, And, and at present, the, none of the criteria really um, fully embrace the, the true spectrum. That's why I love the name of your organization, the Hypermobility Spectrum Organization yeah. Association. And um, because it, it is a spectrum and people can, individuals can be at different places on that spectrum at different places in their life. But, you know, and I, and I understand the need to, to kind of try to break things out for research, you know, for people that are really interested in finding genes. Um, But to me, it's far more important to um, find ways of helping improving people who are in the same symptom cluster. And, you know, like we talk about, even though there's extraordinary um, variation in this community, and sometimes even day to day within one individual, Um, there's also a whole lot of similarities that we have and many of the tips that, you know, people come up with or, and, and like Stickman 
are really broadly applicable. And, um, and, and, and so that's why I, I just personally gravitate towards the approach of the HMSA um, much, much more than other perspectives. I think it's also worth just saying that, you know, with all the comorbidities, I think it's also worth bearing in mind that some of them may not be intrinsically part of the hypermobility. Mm -hmm. They might actually be something that's common for people who've had had to consistently push their body beyond its limits. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, so I wonder whether, so I think I've got a genetic element, probably hypermobility linked to my autonomic dysfunction. Mm -hmm. But I also think that part of the reason it got so severe was I was living way outside my energy capacity for Mm -hmm. a long time because Mm -hmm. I didn't know that I had a limited energy capacity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) So, so I think there's, so I wonder whether there might be a similar link to mast cell activation syndrome where it may not be a direct link. It may be if you stress your body too much, you're much more likely to get it. Therefore, bendy people are likely to get it. But then it, that may also then apply to people with other conditions that limit their energy. That So, yeah, it's it's all very interesting to see what will come out, you know, in the next five or ten years. Absolutely. And, like, in my own personal case, like, I think I, I have one side of the family that has a lot of clear hypermobile features um you know uh me and two other members of my close family um are the only people i've ever met in my life who could cross their elbows behind their back (laughs) that was our party trick um but then on the other side of the family there's more mast cell issues and so i found out i have um hereditary alpha tryptosemia the um tbsap one um, allele variation. And as I understand it, I think the the excess tryptase that I have, I think it, it makes the hypermobility worse and it's a separate set of symptoms. But so th- there's a relationship there. But mm. in terms of sort of the, the larger understanding, um, they do appear to be two, you know, different conditions, but they, when they come together, th- yeah. they create you know, different complications. So teasing out exactly what comes from what and where I think is, is really important. I agree. Uh, one last question, cause I know we've been going for quite a while now, although I could talk to you all day. Um, but what do you think are the most important projects to accomplish for the hypermobility uh, community going forward and how can we in the community help? So- I think this is a question that I'd probably answer slightly differently any day you answer, asked me. So, I get um, that, yeah. <laughs> I think the import for me, the important things are how can we help ourselves and how can we be helped? So um, whether that's medical interventions or self-management, and, and sharing those, those useful moving forward um, information. Um, I think so. Yeah, 
yeah and any any in terms of how the community can help you know sharing useful information um rather than the scare stories um sharing what's helped you sharing what's helped other people um and also contributing to you know the um organizations like the hmsa and eds uk etc who are you know shouting on the bendy's behalf mm-hmm. and you know educating professionals etc because i think if if every individual in the community tried to go off and educate their local healthcare professionals you'll end up with a lot of duplication of effort and it's not really going to work too well mm-hmm. but if everyone put that time and effort into a charity that they've felt connected to mm-hmm. they related to mm-hmm. then that will actually have a huge impact um you know for example i did a talk for the hmsa to a group of about 15 spent a day with about 15 podiatrists and within a week i'd had three of them contact me saying i've just diagnosed someone in clinic thanks to your um, information that's wonderful you know, it, and that's all those people then now getting not only diagnosed, but because the HMSA's um, educational stuff is all, focuses on the management side of things rather than the um, theoretical and genetic side of things. Um, you know, we know that all those patients, they weren't told, oh, you're going to end up in a wheelchair. They were told, right, you're bendy. This explains a lot. Let's see how we can move forwards with this understanding, how we can adapt your exercises, how we can adapt your lifestyle and how we can make life work for you. Absolutely. Yeah. And and even, you know, I completely agree. And also I appreciate the efforts of those who do use wheelchairs working to destigmatize that because I see that as similar to like the rest periods that you've talked about, um, you know, if if a wheelchair enables you to do more and, and participate more fully, um, you know, taking away, you know, that stigma, you you know, of our society kind of assumes people in wheelchairs are all paralyzed and, you know, people who are in wheelchairs are in wheelchairs and that's it. And they're in wheelchairs for the rest of their life and no one can do anything. And there's even a huge spectrum of wheelchair use. You know, there's people that need them occasionally. There's people that use them quite often. Um, yeah. And but they often face the stigma of, well, if if they do get out of their wheelchair and and move around, um, you know, getting those eyebrows of like what's going on there. But so normalizing, you know, yeah. all the different tools at our disposal and empowering patients to know the options that are out there and, and use what's going to work for them in that moment and, and be cognizant of the fact that this, these hypermobility conditions are a wild roller coaster ride. And just because you may need, you know, some kind of brace or some kind of adaptive um, equipment like a wheelchair or crutches um, that does not necessarily mean that that is going to be the rest of your life. Um, It may actually prevent you from that, becoming, you know, a a more um, sort of degenerative uh, situation. But um, yeah, I I really, I also really appreciate the efforts of those who are kind of trying to destigmatize the use of 
of these tools and and just like opening up the toolkit to say and and that's what the HMSA does so well that look here are the options um you know and and it's really you know in in your court to figure out what works for you but I I also live in hope of a day when there's just less stigma and less um binary thinking when it comes to disability because that yeah. really is is difficult for for so it many is. of us yeah yeah I, I i'd second that i think you know every hypermobile person who goes around and manages their condition and lets people see some of their symptoms and some of their management techniques is then helping the average people out there to understand that the hypermobile life absolutely well, thank you so much, Hannah Enzor, for joining us today. Um, this was an incredible conversation. I learned so much. Um, and you have such a unique and invaluable perspective on hypermobility conditions. And I thank you for all the tremendous work that you've done to raise awareness, educate, and um, you know, help people with hypermobility live healthier, more fulfilling, and more stable and supported lives. So Thank you very much. You're very welcome. And thank you for your time. Well, that's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Uh, as always, feel free to email us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com with any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or any feedback. And thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.